Well, this morning, I want to tell you a story. Uh, The story comes from the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, and it's called the story of Esther. Many of you are familiar with Esther. For some of you, it may be a new story. The story of Esther centers around four characters, predominantly two characters, who are living in exile. Now, time has gone on since we last left this exile in Babylon, where Jeremiah uh, was prophesying to the people. Uh, Eventually, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persian Empire, and King Cyrus of the Persian Empire had begun to release the Jewish exiles to go home and rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, so forth and so on. But the majority of the Jewish people had not returned, and in many ways would not return. Uh, And so we still have this experience of a Jewish diaspora uh, living uh, in and throughout Babylon and now also Persia. Amongst this diaspora is a man named Mordecai. Mordecai had been carried off into exile when it first began and was now living uh, in the Persian Empire as a Jewish exile. Uh, Alongside of that, Mordecai was also caring for his cousin Esther. Esther's parents had died, and Mordecai had sort of become a surrogate father to her. Well, they're living here, and the king at the time of the Persians is a guy named Xerxes, or sometimes uh, also called Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, is married to Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti, it says, is incredibly beautiful. Uh, And Xerxes likes to sort of have his thumb on her. He likes to control her. And at one point, he orders her to come. She refuses to come, and he basically strips all of her titles uh, and, and role and reign away from her. And begins to seek out a new queen for himself. He just easily dismisses her. Uh, And then he sets up what I can only describe as some sort of early day beauty pageant. Perhaps this was the lost archives of the actual first season of The Bachelor. Xerxes is gathering all of these beautiful women and he's going to have them audition for the role of queen and he's going to pick the one that he likes the most. But wouldn't you know it, one of the people who is selected to be part of this beauty pageant or this first season of The Bachelor is Esther. It says she's very beautiful and she uh, has won some uh, some liking amongst the people and the people who have a say-so in these things. And so Esther is in this process. She's taken from Mordecai. She's brought into the temple courts. She's groomed. Uh, she's given all these beauty treatments, and she's ready. Well, as the process goes on, incredible enough, Esther is chosen. For you Bachelor fans, she gets the final rose. And Esther becomes the new queen married to King Xerxes. Well, in Xerxes' court is a man named Haman. And Haman is a bad dude, but he is a significant figure in the empire and, of course, in this story as well. Uh, Haman is a viceroy of sorts to the king. And Haman has some issues with Mordecai in particular, but really with the whole of the Jewish people. He doesn't like them. He doesn't want them there. And to be 
blunt, he wants to exterminate them. So using his authority and using his sway with the king, he gets the king to sign on to an agreement to have all of the Jews exterminated in the reaches of the kingdom. Well, somehow Mordecai finds out about this plot. And Mordecai, knowing that his cousin Esther is now the queen, immediately alerts Esther through messengers of Haman's plot. And he says, you need to do something about this. And Esther responds back to him, listen, you know as well as I do that you can't just show up in front of the king. Even the queen can't come to the king unless she's been summoned. If I do, I'll be executed. And this message is brought back to Mordecai. And Mordecai responds a second time to Esther with some pretty famous words in Esther chapter 4. Let me read this to you. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply back to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Pray for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will also fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. A stunning climax, as you were, uh, in, in this story where Esther realizes that, in fact, God has put her in a unique position and is calling her to step into the middle of this circumstance for the glory of God and the good of his people. And, of course, it's Mordecai who says to her, it's perhaps your queen for this very reason. Maybe God knew exactly what he was doing. And Esther's faith is profound. She says, if I perish, then I perish. If I die, then I die. Incredible. Well, Esther goes in front of the king and he receives her. And he asks, what do you want? He says, I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And she simply asks for a banquet. And uh, the next day, as the banquet is thrown, she has had the king invite Haman. And at the banquet, uh, the king once again says to her, Esther, what is it that you want? Anything up to half the kingdom. And it's at this point that Esther stands up and she discloses to the king the full nature of the heinous plot of Haman. And she identifies herself for the first time to the king and his court as Jewish herself. Bold stuff from Esther. And the king responds 
by putting out Haman, literally uh, executing Haman for this heinous plot, uh, crazy enough, executing him on the very, uh, the very pole that Haman himself had erected to see Mordecai killed upon. And he enables the Jews to be armed and to, to um, retaliate, to defend themselves against the coming onslaught. And as the book of Esther concludes, we see the Jewish people prevailing to not only be rescued from certain demise, but actually uh, to, <laughs> to increase. And from the story of Esther comes the Jewish feast of Purim which our Jewish friends have celebrated just a little bit over a month ago, remembering this dramatic and divine rescue of God. Well, if we're looking at this story of Esther through a gospel lens, it seems pretty obvious to me that in so many ways, Mordecai is a type of Jesus. He's standing in the gap The world is opposing him, spitting on him, rejecting him. But he's willing to stand there faithfully as God's ambassador. Whereas Mordecai was sentenced to death and rescued from it, Jesus, as a far better Mordecai, was sentenced to death and went through with it. Therefore, ultimately, not momentarily, rescuing the people of God. And I think in many ways, Esther herself is representative of God's people who are being cheered on by Jesus, pushed to take gospel stands and to to live on the basis of who God is and what he's doing. What does it mean for us as types of Esther to, to live on the basis of God's certain rescue, to take the call of Jesus and to take it seriously and to live into it. Esther has, of course, special meaning for us as we continue in this season of quarantine and global pandemic, living in a sort of exile, unable to be together, and in many ways unable to live in uh, what have become the normal rhythms of our life. But I think there are three prevailing and distinct and important truths in the book of Esther. Listen, there are far more than that, but for our purposes this morning, three distinct, important, significant truths that we need to hold on to deeply, and then on the basis of that, we are called to, uh, in an Esther sort of way, act in faith. The first statement, the first thing that I think we need to hold on to deeply is that we have a purpose. We have a divinely given purpose. Esther, as she found herself um, in exile, really knew nothing other than this exile experience. Uh, It is likely, if not guaranteed, that she was born in this foreign land uh, and that her parents died at a very young age and that she, this is the life that she knew. She was an ordinary person, probably incredibly poor, 
nothing <clears throat> in so many ways uh, to be excited about as an individual person in the midst of this vast kingdom. And yet God had given this orphaned foreign girl a divine purpose. The chief in that purpose is her call, as is the call of every human being, to bring glory to God by how we live, to be worshipers of God, uh, through, that through our worship other people would encounter who God is. But also that she was uniquely gifted, uniquely wired, had unique uh, abilities. Throughout the story of Esther, we keep hearing the word that she found favor in all kinds of people's eyes. She, she had unique social gifts and, and personality that enabled her to be in the, the situation and have uh, the level of influence that she had. She had this unique calling on her life. And I think the same is true for us, church, and we need to always be centered on this, that we, too, have been given divine purpose, that we, too, in every act of life, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us this, uh, verse 31, that in all things that we're called to glorify God, everything small to large in our life is, in fact, an act of worship, that through how we live, we bring glory to God. And Jesus himself reminds us that one of the chief ways we bring glory to God is by accomplishing the mission, the work that he has given us to do. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father this, this long uh, prayer as he concludes his ministry and prepares for the cross. And he says, I have brought you glory by completing the work you have given me to do. What is it that God has called you to do? How has he wired you? In what ways has he prepared you for this moment of life that you find yourself in? How can you bring glory to God in this season? and in the totality of your existence. Now Jesus will go on to tell his disciples that anyone who follows him is called to make disciples, Jesus says. That is, through their life and through their, their message, their words, that they're calling people into a life of following Jesus. What is the chief work that we're given? It's to make Disciples. When we make disciples, we glorify God. Now, certainly that is significant and prominent in our life, but it also sits alongside of all the unique ways that God has wired us individually. I heard one person say this about Esther, that if she had heard this call of God and ran off to Bible college or seminary, she would have messed the whole story up. <laughs> And his point, and the reason I share it with you, is sometimes we think that God only calls the paid professionals, the missionaries, the pastors, the priests, 
so forth and so on, to do these significant spiritual work. And yet the Bible is littered with stories that prove just the opposite, that God has placed people in positions of significance in politics, in business, teachers, nurses, doctors, uh, transportation folks, food workers, uh, maintenance people, electricians, plumbers, the, 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 the line uh, goes on and on and on because in those ways they bring glory to God by the work they do and in the work they do they are moving to make disciples of Jesus. Esther had a profound divine purpose and I think it's really critical for us this morning to remember that so do we. So do we. First truth, we have a divine purpose. The second truth that we need to hold on to is that we have been providentially placed. <laughs> providentially placed. That is that God knew just what he was doing when he put us where he put us. That even means sometimes when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. Now, I need to pause and say, Difficult circumstances aren't necessarily God's intention. Sometimes our terrible decisions or, or wrong life choices lead us into bad stuff. But here's Esther, born right into the middle of this exile. She had no part in bringing about its origin. And yet, God had put her in just the right place for just the right time. He knows what he's doing. And this gives us hope in seasons of exile and in the full measure of life. God has placed you where you are, where you live, where you work, in the groupings of friends that you have, uh, with the affinities and the personal likes and interests that you have. Because... You have opportunity in those spaces to make disciples and to glorify God. I like to use the word spheres of influence. That is places, groupings of people, situations, realities of life that God has providentially placed us in where we have influence. Where we have influence. Mordecai had some level of influence in and around uh, Susa in that day. Esther had profound influence over the king. And you have more influence than you probably will ever give yourself credit for. God has providentially placed you in your job, in your family, in your circle of friends, in your neighborhood, in clubs, with your kids, on purpose for such a time as this. And the third truth is what comes out of the sum total of these first two. That is, if God has given us divine purpose, and if God has providentially placed us, then it must mean that God truly believes in us. And we talk an awful lot in Christian faith about us believing in God. 
And this, of course, is central to the reality of Christian faith, placing our trust in God's work for us. We do not earn it. We trust what he has done for us. But this truth does not in any way negate the reality that God believes in you, not for a saving faith of himself, but he thinks so highly of you that he's given you this divine purpose and providentially placed you where you are because he believes that you are the right person for the job. That God believes that on your street, you were the right choice for a witness that would bring glory to God. That God believes in the workplace where you work, that you were the right choice to extend the fame and the renown of Jesus. That God believes in you and in your circle of friends that, that you were needed there to bring glory to God, to see people come to faith in Jesus. Don't you see it? If he's given you a divine purpose and he's providentially placed you where you are, it's because he believes in you to see the mission through. That's why the psalmist writes pretty famously in Psalm 139 that God created us in our innermost being. He knows everything about us, our wiring, our talents, our uniqueness. Why? Not because he studied up on you, but because he made you that way. And in so doing, he knows you and loves you, the psalmist says, and has sent you. I would add, these three truths ring so loud and clear to me, and they are the underpinnings of Mordecai's plea to Esther. Perhaps, he says, I think he felt more strongly than perhaps, God has placed you here for such a time as this. What is he saying? You have a divine purpose. You've been providentially placed, and God believes in you. So here we are in the midst of exile, in a global pandemic, and in a bigger sense, just in a broken world. It's full of pain and it's hard and there's nothing easy about it in any way, shape, or form. But it's the story of Esther and really Mordecai's central plea to her that should stop us in our tracks and make us ask some serious questions. That is, do I have a role to play in the midst of all this chaos? And I think the Bible is pretty clear that not only do you have a role to play, you have a significant role to play. And so we need to stop and ask ourselves on the heels in the midst of this pandemic as we begin to see signs of uh, reopening of, uh, of society and re-entrance and, and going back to what used to be normal rhythms for us, begin to really ask ourselves in all these ways, what is my divine purpose. And 
where have I been providentially placed? And do I honestly think that God believes in me? And as you process those questions and stand in faith on those three important realities, I think we begin to ask ourselves, then what is it that God's calling me to? And I want to suggest to you two things. <laughs> There's one overarching thing that I think he's calling all of us to. We'll get to that in a minute. But I think he might be calling us each to some unique and creative things that I can't enunciate to you because I don't know what they are. The truth is that I wasn't present when you were created. <laughs> and as well as I may or may not know you, God knows you far better. And he's the one to ask the question to. What is it that God might be calling you to for such a time as this? In the midst of exile, in the midst of pandemic, or on a bigger scale, in the midst of the brokenness of this world. As you process that question, let me give you a few helpful things. One, do it covered in prayer. You should be praying and you should be asking other people to pray for you. The first thing Esther says is, all right, I'm going to consider what I should do here. Please fast and pray for me. <laughs> and we should be doing the same thing too. We don't need to make um, hasty decisions based on what we think might be right. But to truly seek and listen to God. And as we do that, to be saturated in the counsel of Scripture. God is not going to ask us to do anything that is contradictory to Scripture, nor is He going to ask us to do anything that is counter to the themes and the wisdom of Scripture. In fact, what He is going to ask you to do is something on the basis of that wisdom and those themes. And then seek the counsel of wise people and invite their wisdom into it. This is one of the reasons the church exists. So we can spur one another on towards the right things. You know, it's fascinating as Mordecai is suggesting to Esther what she should do. And as Esther, Esther is trying to figure out what she ought to do. Uh, there's no leafing through the Torah, right? They're Old Testament people. They're not of trying to find uh, chapter and verse in Deuteronomy or Exodus or Genesis because it doesn't exist. <laughs> There's no chapter and verse for how they should respond to that moment. But there's this sense of this seems right. In other words, coming to a conclusion on the basis of who God is and what he has called his people to be. And I would suggest to you, the same is true in your circumstance. What is it that God might be calling you to do? Well, I suggested to you earlier that I think there is one universally true thing that he's calling us all to. And so let me not belabor the point anymore. And it's as simple as this, and Jesus said it pretty loud and clear. Love your neighbor. 
Now, if you've been with us through this whole series, we've been kind of touching on that every single time, and I've kept reining myself in because I knew this sermon, this talk, was coming. Uh, we kind of got into it a good bit last week, too, in terms of seeking the peace and the prosperity of those around you. What does it mean to think in a us terminology rather than a me terminology? And now as we think about what it might be that God is calling us to, we can be certain that central to it is this idea to love our neighbor. We're looking no farther than Jesus, as I mentioned earlier. He said the whole law, the whole way of God can be summarized in the two statements, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he would go on to tell his disciples that the singular way people are going to know that you are my people, that you're my followers, is by your church attendance? No. By your Bible reading plan? No. By your ridiculously good prayer life? No. Again, all three of those things are really good and you should pursue them. But Jesus said the way they'll know, the distinguishing mark of a Jesus follower, is by your love. By your love. Now, there's reason why loving our neighbor is something we keep at arm's length uh, pretty often. And it's because it's risky, right? It's risky. We're opening up a whole can of worms. Uh, opening up relationships we may not want to enter into. Opening up rejection that we may not want to face. Opening up needing to talk about Jesus and the scariness of that, even though if we really think about that, that seems so backwards that we would be uh, ashamed or afraid to talk about the one who set aside heaven to come to earth to set everything in this broken world right. But nonetheless, I understand it. And here again, I think we take our marching orders from Esther. And we have to admit our vulnerability, right? We have to admit our vulnerability. I think it starts there. And I love the story of Esther, right? Uh, and her response to Mordecai. Her first thing is, hey, what you're asking me to do is incredibly risky, cousin. So thanks for that. You realize if I just show up in front of the king, he could kill me. Now think about this from Esther's perspective. First of all, she's a, a, a woman and female, and in those days that places her in a lesser position and, and without any kind of authority. Secondarily, she do exactly what happened to the queen who came before her. The whole reason she was in the beauty pageant and got the final rose and won the first season of The Bachelor and became queen of Persia is because on a whim, the king got annoyed with Vashti and put her out. And now she's going to come unsummoned to this king when the law says that can mean death. And oh, by the way, in the process, going to have to admit <clears throat> that she herself is a foreigner, is a Jew. And she kept this secret uh, because Mordecai had told her to. 
in all these ways, she is incredibly vulnerable. She is putting herself out there, laying it on the line. And the only reason <clears throat> that faith rises above fear, remember from our first talk in this, is that's a false binary, right? She's incredibly afraid. She, fear doesn't go away. Is because she becomes certain about those three truths. A divine purpose, a providential place, and God's belief in her. And she makes an awfully telling statement. If I die, I die. Incredible. For us, as we think about what it means to be defined by our love and our love for our neighbor, especially in these uncertain times. We ought to start by admitting our vulnerability, that this is going to open us up and there might be rejection and it might be hard and it might seem like there's not enough time and what if we start talking about issues of faith and we just have to say, I'm going to trust. And then we have to acknowledge our divine purpose and providential place, right? We acknowledge the truth about who God is and what he has called us to do. So I want to do something interactive as much as we can do this virtually, and we'll see how this goes. So we said three things, right? Divine purpose, providentially placed, and God's belief in you. I want you to respond to this, um, and please do, right? The first thing that we need to think through, that we need to acknowledge, is that God has given us a divine purpose. That, that the reason we exist is to be in relationship with Him and to bring glory to Him. And that we do it in a prominent way by living for and introducing other people to Jesus. If you agree with that, if you're willing to publicly acknowledge that in this moment, you just tap that heart button a couple of times and say, you're right, you know what, I'm going to acknowledge this. There's a divine purpose for me. Go ahead and tap it. Yeah. Yes. And then secondly, have you been providentially placed? We need to acknowledge that God has placed us where we are. Well, again, we speak in terms of, uh, of spheres of influence uh, in your groups of friends, uh, where you live, where you work, all of these things. But as symbolic of that, to acknowledge that publicly in this moment, what I want you to do is, is use the chat feature. I know you're going to have to actually type now, and it might make you give uh, a first name or something like that. Um, please do. All right, we, want, we want to hear this. In the chat feature, would you just write down the name of the town or the township? or the community that you live in. That's not all of your spheres of influence, but it's representative of, it's one of them, and it's representative of all of them. It's acknowledging that God has placed us here on purpose. Go ahead, there's, there's more, right? There's more of you to write that. 
type that in. I'll type mine in right now. Yes, providentially placed. And then thirdly, friends, if God has given you a divine purpose, and if he has providentially placed you, then does that mean, and do you believe that God believes in you? That he knew what he was doing when he placed you there and gave you the purpose he's given. If that's true, let's go back to the first thing and tap that heart button a couple of times. Go ahead. God believes in me. I, I believe that. I feel that. Tap it. Go ahead. More. Yes. We acknowledge it publicly. And what happens as we acknowledge this publicly, it begins to, to swell in us faith. It doesn't get rid of the fear. It doesn't get rid of the vulnerability. But we realize, yes, there's, there's reason in this. And so then what I would say lastly is then we should aim to be a blessing. In other words, how? How do I love my neighbor in this season? Well, it's going to be different for each of us, but I love the Abrahamic covenant because at, at its core is the roots of Jesus' call to love your neighbor as yourself. That is that God calls us to be a conduit of blessing. We know love because God loves us, and then we give love. Right? We know peace because God gives peace to us, and then we offer peace that we are called to bless those around us and to be a blessing to them. And so we've taken this bless, this word bless, and uh, using it to give five statements or, or five ideas that help us know what it means to love our neighbor. And I would suggest to you that this should be an ambition of an everyday experience for us. Certainly now in the midst of quarantine, but also as we get back to the regular uh, rhythms of life, that every day we should be seeking these kind of touches to uh, those in our spheres of influence. See, right? B. B stands for begin with prayer. That is that we should be praying constantly for people in our spheres of influence praying for them now, for their, for their safety, for their well-being, for their jobs, for their families, for their fears, for their anxieties, and also praying for opportunities for the other four statements that we'll get to. Begin with prayer. Pray regularly. It's a way to be a blessing. The L stands for listen. Listen. We don't start with talking, right? We listen. We hear hopes and dreams. In these seasons, we hear fears and anxiety. We, we nod and we acknowledge and we listen actively. And, and uh, in so doing, we build the bonds of trust and of friendship with people around us. One of the most profound ways that people feel loved, studies have shown, is when they feel genuinely heard. It seems so simple and yet so foreign in our society. What would it mean to make space to listen to others? It's a way that we love them. The E stands for 
eat. Now I understand we are in the red zone, right? And so this is not possible uh, unless you're incredibly creative in this particular uh, moment of quarantine. But yellow is coming soon and we'll be able to have small gatherings. E is for eat, right? To, to eat together, to share meals together. Relationships are formed that way. Inviting someone to the table with you is an incredible embrace uh, of that person and acceptance of that person. It has been uh, since the beginning of time and it continues to be an incredible way to love your neighbor is to eat with them. So maybe in this season, it is setting up the time when you can share a meal with someone. Then the first S stands for serve. Respond to the needs and the struggles of those in your spheres of influence. Maybe it's as simple as connecting them to our Do Good, Give Hope initiative, an incredible way to serve. Or maybe there's needs in their midst that you can meet individually, but being oriented to serve them in some way. And then the last S is for story. And by story, we mean sharing the story of God, sharing the story of God's rescue in and through Jesus and what that has meant to you personally and how it has changed you. And some of the first ones might have been scary. Having someone over, uh, I don't know. And this one for many of you probably is like, oh, I knew he might talk about this. But how could we not share our faith and say that we love our neighbors? Now, this is not about beating down doors and, and, and shoving things down people's throats. But when opportunities arise through relationships as they present themselves or unique opportunities in conversations, uh, to be ready, as First Peter said, First Peter writing to exiles and diaspora all around the, the empire, said, hey, be ready to respond when those opportunities arise. Bless. Begin with prayer. Listen, eat, serve, and story. It gives you a, a handle, a way to live into this big overarching idea of loving your neighbor, of in some way embracing your divine purpose and acknowledging your providential placement where you are. A way in which you can every day bring glory to God by pursuing these things. You know, what's fascinating about the story of Esther is that Esther really, her sphere of influence is actually kind of small. And uh, she impacts the king. But through her impact of the king, the entire population of Jewish people to the extent of the empire is deeply impacted. Sometimes we look at our world and say, what kind of impact can I really make. The brokenness is far too great. The virus is far too pervasive. Uh, the unemployment is far too high. Uh, the amount of people in my neighborhood is beyond my comprehension. And then we're remembered that through one person who influences another person, ultimately an entire people is rescued. 
It's kind of like having a stone and being on the edge of a pond and tossing it into the middle. And it makes a splash in the middle. Probably not that big of a splash unless it's a giant boulder. And then the stone sinks to the bottom. But on top, the ripples of its effect are extending all the way to the edge of the pond, all across the proverbial kingdom. You have a significant role to play now. God has given you a divine purpose and he has providentially placed you and he believes in you and so do I. Can I pray with you? God, thank you for the story of Esther. A story of dramatic rescue of your people through the vulnerable yet faith-filled act of a regular person just like us. Please remind us of our purpose and our providential placement. Assure us of your belief in us. And then, Spirit, would you guide us as we begin to ask ourselves, what does it mean? What is my role to play in this now? How do I respond? Give us the creative and the unique answers that you desire to give to us individually, and then help all of us to lean heavily into this call to love our neighbors. We ask it in your name. Amen.